Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can't tell you how excited I am, honestly, for this episode. I'm so happy to be putting this one out into the world and for really a couple reasons. Of course, as always, we have a smart, successful guest for you, but even more than that, Our guest this week is a good friend of mine. This week on the show, we have Doug Hench. Doug is a certified executive coach, consultant, and corporate trainer. A few years back, Doug helped launch a leading self-improvement website, which helped over 100,000 people increase their well-being and resilience. It was this project that brought Doug to work directly with Dr. Martin Seligman, Fox Leadership Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and the father of positive psychology. In fact, Dr. Seligman, who Doug refers to as Marty, which I find funny, called Doug one of his most talented young colleagues, which really, if you know Dr. Seligman, that's high praise. Doug has created workshops that focus on resilience, strengths, well-being, and goals. And of course, He is the author of the brand new book, which we will be discussing today, Positively Resilient, Five and a Half Secrets to Beat Stress, Overcome Obstacles, and Defeat Anxiety. 
I mean, who doesn't want to do those things? I'm telling you, everyone I run into, because I'm kind of an open book, I start to learn, oh, yeah, I'm stressed about this. You know, here's the anxiety I have. Here are my obstacles. And so I just could not wait to get my hands on this book, to talk with Doug, and to learn what has he uncovered in 20 years of experience and after going through decades of research. And this book really is the culmination of that. So in this episode, you're going to hear a few things. First, what do we mean by resiliency? What does it mean to be resilient? And I love the definition that Doug brings to the table. And then not just kind of this academic view of how to build resiliency, but really some practical, useful tips that anyone can implement backed by science and experience. Going to turn it over here to Doug in a minute. All I want to say is the holidays are approaching. If you're doing that shopping, remember smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon will take you straight to Amazon. We get a little kickback. Support the show. Something small you can do. Thanks so much for being a listener here. Head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter if you'd like to hear more from us. There's a sign up in the bottom right-hand corner, and we hope to connect with you there. Let's get on with this. Going to turn it over to my friend Doug Hench as we discuss his new book, Positively Resilient. Well, Doug, first I want to say thanks so much for being on the show. And as a, as a friend, it's great to have you on and it's great to read your book. Congratulations on, on getting it done, getting it out there. Thanks, Chris. And I'm honestly, I'm humbled to be here and I'm excited for us to just have a, a conversation about this stuff. So I'm trying to think of so many places there are to start. And I'm going to start with one of my personal favorite little tidbits of information. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your background, but specifically, I want to know, you worked with Dr. Martin Seligman, who is like a hero of mine. <laughs> Tell us about that experience, because I think, in at least from what I know about you, that almost set the stage for where you are today. <laughs> you know what? I'm laughing because I remember the first time I met him, and it was what I imagine it's like for some, uh, you know, a teenager in the sixties to meet the Beatles. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I stumbled over my words. Uh, you know, in fact, my colleague who made the introduction because, uh, and a quick shout out to Andrew Rosenthal, we both worked on happier.com together and, and he had been working for Marty and Marty's lab was also working for our company and made the introduction and got every, the meeting all set up. And, and I saw him put his head down and just shake it because he couldn't believe how bad I was fumbling this when I was trying to get Marty to have more faith in our company. <laughs> uh, with, with that said, uh, it was a great experience and it was also, um, powerful in that I was able to see that he, he's, he eventually through that meeting and multiple meetings with Marty, that he is just a man. And then I started to build my confidence that I could bring some of this good information and content to people as well. Uh, but working with a heavyweight like Marty, an intellectual heavyweight, uh, it opened the doors to be able to talk to people like Todd Cashton and Barbara Fredrickson and the late Chris Peterson and Robert Biswas Diener and others um, that just, it, it just upped my game and added a little legitimacy to, to the things I was trying to accomplish. Well, and clearly, I mean, if you're on a first name basis with him, you know, Marty, I mean, and so, <laughs> so for the listeners, there's some that are following along on the fan club, but what are we talking about even when we're talking about 
you know, Martin Seligman? So uh, he is a research psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and he is considered by many to be the father of positive psychology. And he's quoted as saying sometime in the late 90s when he was, I believe, the president of the American Psychological Association, he, his, um, one of his big speeches talked about how psychology needed to go in a new direction. And he talked about a positive psychology where we didn't always try to get people who were at a negative eight to maybe a negative one or a zero so that they could function. But he asked the question, how can we get people to flourish, to be a plus five, a plus ten? And he has written a number of excellent books. And in particular, uh, I would say Learned Optimism was the one that probably sparked the fire in me a number of years ago that just got me off and running to say people are actually studying this with the scientific method this is crazy yeah i mean he got me hooked i almost went because you can get a degree in positive psychology um at upenn and i almost went uh this was actually the same time the podcast started i was looking at different careers and that was one of them so now take us to how did you put yourself in that situation what brought you to kind of positive psychology and then how, how do you think that has transitioned into what you're doing now? So the way, I mean, I literally stumbled across it. I, I am a learner. I've always been very curious. I love to read. And I had been spending a, a great deal of my time and energy reading World War II history. So I do, I, just there's something about that era that, that really fascinates me. And uh, my wife at the time had purchased Now Discover Your Strengths, which I have a feeling you're familiar with as yeah, well. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. 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 And um, I had finished a book and I turned to, uh, on the nightstand and I said, what's this? And she said, oh, I bought it on Amazon and it's, it's got this neat little test that tells you about your personality. Mm-hmm. So I picked it up and I was hooked, literally hooked by the second paragraph, this concept that when we live and work in our strengths, we can be more engaged, more creative. And... Um, Lo and behold, I bought the book for my team uh, that, I, that I was managing at the time at Nextel. And we ran a little mini workshop in the afternoon once after everyone had read the book. And people walked out with a spring in their step. And our team changed the way we talked to each other. And we started cha- exchanging projects. And we started speaking to each other in more of a strengths language. And our performance really did improve dramatically over time. Somebody in human resources found out about this somehow, very luck, and uh, you know, very lucky for us, and said, "Doug, would you run a workshop for our senior leaders in finance? Because it would be too expensive to farm this out." And I said, "Sure." So I just threw something together as a full day workshop, and then somebody came back to me inside of Nextel University. I, I'll never forget. He walked over. A guy named Danny walked over to my cube, holding a piece of paper and looking at the reviews of the class, and said, "Doug, you could sell this someday." I kind of, I just Mm -hmm. laughed, but that was, had been a part of my vision, uh, that I had written down years before that someday I did want to work for myself. And, you know, then I was working for this happiness company involved with Marty and we had this, you know, the, the issues with the, the financial collapse. And then that's when I went out on my own and said, as much as people are slashing training budgets right now, I think employees need resilience. Mm -hmm. I think they need to learn how to be resilient. And I think companies with less people doing more work, need to teach them how to be resilient before they teach them how to use a software program, how to sell, how to handle objections, how to deal with customer service. So I just positioned it as if you don't do this, um, you know, n- n- nothing else is going to stick. Mm. And it seemed to seem to work. Well, and you know, with that background, it makes the title of your book even more it just 
you know, more, it makes more sense. So the book, Positively Resilient, Positively Resilient. So you were doing positive psychology, you know, all that, and mm-hmm. resiliency brought it together. And so we're going to get into that. But you kind of touched on this. You struck out on your own. And people listening to the show know this is kind of a, an industry that I'm fascinated in. You know, do a little bit of, actually do more than I thought I would. But you're a certified executive coach, a consultant, and a corporate trainer. And with those things, we've had similar backgrounds on the show. And I've never asked this question, and I'm, I'm mad about that. What does mm-hmm. a typical day look like for you? That's a really good question. And I would say there's probably generally two types of days. They fall into two buckets. One is the, the stay-at-home day where I work out of my house, which I am doing right now. And that will involve you know, getting up at a decent hour. I get a nice long walk in. I listen to the most recent Smart People podcast yeah. for a good hour or so. And, and as you know, I'm, I'm not making that up because I'm you know, texting and emailing you every other day of, of people you should interview. That's and I true. love this one. Right. That's true. So, so I do that. Uh, I eat a, as healthy a breakfast as I can. I probably have some coaching calls or client calls in the morning. I work out during lunch. I get a good hour in, and then I try to eat a good lunch. I may or may not. I, I'm not sure I should be saying this on the air, but I <laughs> take a quick nap in the afternoon because I do believe that you know sleep and your body have a big impact on your resilience as well. Uh, and then, again, I may have some coaching calls in the afternoon, and then the night is usually going to jujitsu or coaching my kids in, um, you know, basketball, flag football, you name it. The other type of day is I'm on site facilitating usually a full day class, uh, which leaves me to push some of those things to the night. And then the nap doesn't work very well with a room full of people. Mm -hmm. And you know, that lifestyle, the one you just kind of spelled out is what drew me to the industry. And then now that I do it specifically more of the corporate training, um, it isn't exactly what it sounds like, you know? So, I mean, people think, oh, you hop on a coaching call, but how much time, what goes into these coaching calls? The things that you're dealing with, the way you need to be able to think on your toes and give your clients your full attention, it is, at least in my opinion, maybe you've kind of passed the threshold, but it is a very intense time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I totally agree. So I, I will start preparing for a coaching call, assuming I don't have back-to-back, and I try not to do that uh, because I do believe our brains need that downtime. And again, I talk about the walks in the morning are invaluable to me. Um, But I I would say I start preparing for a coaching call a good half hour before it occurs, Mm -hmm. and I spend a good you know, 10 to 15 minutes taking notes afterwards, depending on if I took notes during the call. And part of that prep is – um, engaging in a little bit of mindfulness, you know, maybe a quick meditation, uh, for literally just a couple minutes so that I am as curious as can be. And I remind myself of the, the basic principles of being a good coach, not, you know, not constantly teaching and telling, but listening and allowing the other person to find their own path. Well, I've always wondered that. And I actually, I've, I've wondered what you do anyways, because you're like, oh, I'm going here and then I'm coaching this guy. I'm like, you have seven different jobs. How does it, but it all rolls into one, essentially. It, it does. And, and, you know, like you said, it, it can sound easy and romantic, but there were a number of years of uh, scraping to get by. Mm-hmm. 
And then there are those times when, you know, luckily business is fantastic, but there are those, there were those times, particularly in the beginning when I thought to myself, better get my resume together. I don't Mm -hmm. know if I can, I can keep things going. And it was, uh, you know, touch and go for a number of years. Well, and then you must have relied on your resiliency. So (laughs) something I want to get to, and I have to admit, here's another first for the show. I want to say that this is crazy. I can't believe I'm saying this. The preface alone. Okay. The, the first page of the book, I, I have a note here that says, I'm going to like this. This is the most authentic page I've ever read, literally. And I say that in all honesty, you start the book off by just being completely open, authentic, and inviting. And I think you carry that tone throughout the book. Is that something that was purposeful? Is that part of who you are? Is that, How did that play a role in what I believe turned out to be this conversational, accessible book that has a number of useful, you know, potentially life-changing uh, pieces of information in it. Yeah, so I think there's two two parts. Two there's a two-part answer here. First is, uh, you know, my good friend and super intellect Todd Cashton, uh, who uh, you've had on your show, right? Mm-hmm. With Upside yeah. the Dark Side and Curious, two of my favorite books. When people ask me what do I need to read, those are almost always in a list. And one of the things that one of his best pieces of advice among many was write the type of book that you enjoy reading. So that made it easier for me to just write in, you know, uh, non-academic, uh, even non-business language, even though uh, much of this can be used in the business world. Uh, so that that's part of it. The second part of this is I really don't consider myself to be a naturally resilient person. And you and I have talked about sports, right? We, we grew up playing them mm-hmm. and they were a big part of our lives and they probably still are to some extent, uh, harder with kids and, and jobs and so forth now, of course. Um, but I played football in college and I was a quarterback. And I have to tell you, it wasn't until my senior year that I started. And when I threw an interception, it was devastating. I, you know, I look at, so my Typically, when I look at quarterbacks or athletes, I look at how they bounce back because they're all going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. How are they going to do after they threw a pass away, missed a dunk, threw an interception, dropped a pass? And, you know, I, as much as I'm not a Patriots fan, I mean, Tom Brady just just keeps coming and keeps coming. doesn't matter what they throw at this guy. He keeps coming back. So I, I tell you that because I have literally tried everything in this book. And I've had my share of adversity in the last couple of years, um, and I've put this stuff to work, and I work at it every day. You know, I, I wouldn't plan on this, but I want to do- just jump straight in. This idea of, you know, like you said, I've dealt with my fair share of adversity, and I've been talking with my friends about this now that we're all, you know, so I'm 33. Uh, listeners have been listening since I was, I don't know, 26 or 7. A lot, a lot has changed. And unfortunately, I'm finding maybe this is a trend that continues, but the older I get, the more adversity I have to deal with. And I don't know if it just becomes responsibility, age, you know, which comes injuries and sickness, a growing community of of friends and family, which then sets you up for more. Really? I mean, yes, there's great times. I'm not doom and gloom, but the more people you care about, the more you're opening yourself up to adversity or hurt or pain. Um, have you found that? Is that, a, is that something you realize that just 
you know, as life goes on, you better practice this this type of stuff. You better work on the resiliency because it's going to continue to throw things at you, which is essentially life. Well, so again, I think there's a two-part answer. And I think the first part is, look, you feel responsible to your wife and to your son. Mm -hmm. So of course the the ramifications of a, of a slip up of lower income have an impact on your family's well-being potentially. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that's certainly why you probably see more adversity or your radar is a little higher or which Mm -hmm. makes you a little bit more anxious and worried. And then the second thing is, um, I, I think we have to be, resilience can be like happiness, right? And I'm sure you've heard some of your guests and, and just, uh, your time on YouTube, whatever you've read, you know, the more you focus on something, the harder it it can be to achieve. So for instance, if you try to, if you say my goal is to be happy by the end of this year, I mean, you're almost certain to be, you know, to fail (sighs) because of course it's a journey and all the other colloquialisms we know. Um, but I think there can be a similar thing with resilience that if you, uh, say, say for instance, that you don't, uh, you're, you're trying not to get so upset when your boss cuts you off in meetings and that's a big, big thing for you. And it, it seems to create this real, you know, uh, sweaty palms, elevated heart rate, and maybe you, you get angry and say some things you wish you hadn't. And let's just say you slip, you've been doing really well for a week, and all of a sudden you punish yourself for doing that. Well, you got to give yourself a break, can't be thinking about this stuff all the time. And it, it's a fairly complex construct. That's very difficult to measure, in my humble opinion. So we have to be careful about how much we, um, how much energy we put directly into being um, resilient. I think if you're if you're missing a little bit, so maybe for you, Chris, in, based on your what I just heard from you, maybe a little bit more positivity makes sense. And what I mean by that is, are there ways to find a little bit more joy in your life? <laughs> it could be watching Seinfeld reruns. It could be taking walks. It could be. Um, um, you know, something fun with your wife date night once a month because you've got so much going on that that instead of the big picture of resilience, get at some of the levers here, maybe. And then you're in a better and you're a better place. Now let's take a break for a message from our sponsor, Periscope. Okay, calling all nerds, calling all nerds. You all know my story. I used to work in finance, which seems like a lifetime ago. And there were things about it I didn't like. And one of the things that was so frustrating was the speeds at which all of the data would come together and be compiled in my spreadsheets. Well, luckily, those days are gone. Periscope data is the ultimate tool for fast and flexible data visualization. Why run slow queries on old spreadsheet data when Periscope data allows you to run, visualize, and share analysis over billions of data rows in seconds? That's billions with a B. You can turn query results into vibrant charts with one click. Go from SQL queries to actionable insights and dashboards in seconds. Plus, there's no setup cost or time. With Periscope, you can get trialing and delivering insights as soon as you plug in your credentials. No giant statements of work. No top-heavy meetings. It sounds so beautiful. Periscope data is a powerful and intuitive tool that will bring your SQL analysis to the next level. Get a free trial today by going to www.periscopedata.com slash smart. That's periscopedata.com slash smart. Now back to the episode. 
Yeah, and and I've definitely, I mean, and I've talked to other people. I know that they're dealing with this. I think, you know, actually once you get into your 30s, then you feel the weight of that. And that's why I want to talk about another part. As, as soon as we, as soon as I get into your book, you start talking about essentially the case for resilience, why we need it. And I'll tell you, there's two things that jumped out at me about this. One, it sounds pretty scary. And, and you set us up with all of the things, and hear me out, you know, all the things that are quote unquote difficult about today. And right. I got to admit, you nail them. I mean, you nail them. You feel like you're living with, you know, you're creeping in my living room or on my, <laughs> on the job. And it's because I, again, I teach some, some similar stuff. Um, and so I know this goes on everywhere. Would you mind kind of covering that in, in your experiences, how much you believe just so people feel like, you know what, because I'll tell you what it did for me. I felt like, okay, I'm allowed to feel this way. I'm allowed to feel a little anxious. I'm allowed to feel stressed out. And he's right. These are the, these, the forces that are working on it. And not in a way of playing the victim, but of saying, now that I feel okay, I can work towards it, towards something. Mm-hmm. So what were those things for us? If you could kind of. Sure sum it up. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, there's a number of forces, of course, that are, I I think, uh, contributing to what I see as a lower levels of resilience overall. And it's my subjective view, right? That's all it is. Um, But if you look at uh, one thing that that, uh, I get frustrated with probably almost every day, particularly as a coaching a travel basketball team, you know, a little uh, flag football team and and just being around kids enough, it's the, the helicopter parenting that our society seems to almost encourage. For instance, I get, I'd say an email almost every day from my, my sons are in middle school and I get an email almost, I would say every day, every day from at least one of their teachers telling me about what assignments they have due this week. And I delete it immediately because (laughs) I'm not getting graded on this. And how am I helping my child if I say, Hey, did you get this done? He's not learning to be organized, right? Uh, he's, he needs to get B's and C's and D's and maybe fail a class or two to truly learn how to organize himself and be prepared for himself as an adult. So the, the, the hovering over kids and the lack of allowing them to fail is, I think the impact on our society is tremendous and we're only beginning to see the, you know, the, the, the ramifications of it. The, the other thing is we're so busy. We take on so much, which also comes into some of the parenting, that I, I, there is something about trying to ensure your kid's success, however you define it, not how they define it, that we have them um, on three or four teams at a time. And, and by the way, it's not just sports. It could be a musical instrument or it could be a self-defense class. And these kids are so busy that they're not even having a chance to be bored. They don't know how to look within themselves and try to find some interest and understand what their meaning and purpose is because they're just being shuffled from place to place. And and as adults, the same exact thing is happening. How often do your clients, Chris, describe environments where people get in at 8, 8.30 and have meetings from nine till 12, maybe a half hour for lunch and then 1230 to five, they're in meetings again. Oh yeah. And, and of course the amount of email you're getting then has you doing work at home. 
right? It's unreal. I mean, it's it unreal. Is. And it's everywhere, by the way. I mean, it's yeah. every company. It's actually, because again, the vast majority of my time is spent on the road, eight, 10 trips a month, different companies, all that. And one of the things that is happening to me, and I'd love to, to hear your take on it because you do similar things, is like, I get worried about the state of just the the human being. I mean, it's it's everyone. The frustration is palpable. Right. And so that when you touch on that in the beginning, I'm like, I know, I know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, so so uh, I agree, and and uh, we also now have technologies that make that it easier for us to be overwhelmed and over busy. Um, and, and, and then when you look at, uh, the research by Sherry Turkle out of MIT, we're losing our ability to be human. Like you said, we are, her, her book is called, um, reclaiming conversation. And I'm going to beg you to put her on someday because, you know, she is absolutely phenomenal. And, um, in fact, now, Chris, I start my workshops by telling people, you know what, here's the deal. Um, we're not going to do ground rules. You're all, you're all adults, right? But let me just share a couple of tidbits of research about what these phones are doing to us. And I talk about how levels of empathy are dropping, how a phone on the table can inhibit conversation, even if it's turned off, even if it's in your peripheral vision. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, then I, people then get nervous, you know, there, there's that embarrassed, you know, put the phone off of the table and they put it in their purse or in their knapsack or whatever. And what I tell people is finally, I say, now here's the deal. If someone's going to die as a result of your not responding to an email, I want you to hold the phone in front of your face for the entire day. And of course I get some laughs and so forth, but people get it. And we are so hyper connected that we're not being present with other people. And we're not being present in training and meetings where our minds are constantly elsewhere, which I think is cr- contributing to this feeling of overwhelmed and, and stressed and anxious. Mm-hmm. And then there's one, I got to touch on this. Well, actually, the, the other two ones I really enjoyed, and because and, these are just some of the reasons you talk about needing to work on resiliency, but you definitely talk about the paradox of choice, which for those that aren't familiar, we interviewed Barry Schwartz. So go back and check that one out. Uh, but just the amount of choice is daunting. But you know, the the one that I really, I found just gripping me was this epidemic of comfort. (laughs) And, you know, we interviewed a couple of people, but one, I think it was Joe DeSena who founded Spartan Race. And he talked about how the abundance of comfort directly limits our resiliency. And he said, you know, take a cold shower and see how uncomfortable you feel with that. It's because, and I admit I do this, I have a Nest thermostat. It is set between 68 and 72 degrees. That means I spend all of my time at home in a four-degree swing, which is crazy. So when I read this, I was like, damn, Doug, you got you got me. <laughs> well, I mean, Chris, don't pummel yourself for that. You're doing, a, you're doing some good for the environment. <laughs> uh, let's see, your Nest is learning and saving energy, so I've got one as well. Exactly. Um, what, uh, you know, the epidemic of comfort, it, that is a really interesting thing. And, you know, I think I, I tell that story, uh, you know, in the book, but when, when, you know, I'll never forget in sports illustrated how a couple times a year I could order a, um, a poster, right. And my mom would let me get maybe one or two posters a year. 
And at the bottom of the form that you had to tear out of the magazine that had the little dotted line with the little icon of scissors, right? It said, please allow eight to 12 weeks for delivery. And now we can have things, if you live in certain urban areas, you can have things delivered the same, within hours. And I, I, I do think that there may be times, I totally agree with your previous um, guest, that there are times when literally taking a cold shower or finding a way, you know, instead of buying the chopped up vegetables, take some time to do it yourself. Take some time to make dinner, even though it takes a little bit longer, and find a way to be uncomfortably comfortable. And I, I think you that's 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 the intersection where we grow. It's certainly not when nothing's threatening us. You mentioned something there with chopping up your own vegetables and taking time to make dinner, right? Yep. And I think this goes in perfectly into what your book is about, which is identifying some areas and then really talking about ways to work on your resilience. You offer a number of tips. You can pick or choose what you like. Mm -hmm. So the other day, I'm in the grocery store and I'm getting ready. I'm, I'm looking for things for dinner. I'm going to, because I make dinner a lot. And the dinner part I love, shopping for the food, that's another story. And I'm <laughs> rushing through the grocery store. I'm like weaving and bobbing and, and I, I, I stop and I catch myself and I feel I'm in this state of alarm, right? This state of anxiety. I'm just heightened. And I said, why am I rushing? Well, to get home and cook. Okay. And then I get home and cook and I probably might rush that. And then we eat. Why? Well, to, to get to the next thing. And I realized there's plenty of time where I'm not doing things throughout the day. So I've rushed to give myself that time. And in those moments, what do I do? I worry about what I need to do next. Mm -hmm. And so I realized essentially I'm rushing to worry. And I just, th that hit me literally reading. I remember the thing you were talking about, the, um, the, the ordering the poster and everything. And I think, how, how do we fix that? How do we fix this idea of if we get something done quick enough, we can move on to the next and always working towards the next thing? Yeah, so maybe part of this is, um, and I'm big on language, as I think you know, Chris, mm -hmm. that even using the words fix might not necessarily be always be the right way to be looking at this. There are times when rushing is completely appropriate. If you're stuck in traffic and you need to pick your son up from daycare, you know, rushing is probably a good idea. Yeah right? Because you're going to get fined and you miss your son and you just want to hang out with him. Um, but in terms of, you know, I keep coming back to curiosity and mindfulness in my own life that just pausing and paying attention to uh, things I need to do. So let's go back to this cooking dinner thing. A number of months ago, I realized that I was, was really rushing through dinners as well. And I realized that what I was sacrificing was in particular health of my kids and myself. So I finally, there was something on my list of things to buy where I went out and bought a really nice set of Henkel knives. Now, unfortunately, I promptly cut myself and got <laughs> stitches <laughs> like within a week of using them. But that's not the point. The point is that I started to watch videos on how to cut an onion, right? And I started to ask friends about you know, and I, I got some cast iron uh, skillets uh, in about the same time. And I started just looking at more videos of 
of what to cook in a cast iron skillet, asking friends. In fact, we just went out to a Japanese steakhouse the other day and I was uh, talking the chef's ear off. I think he was I think he cooked super fast to get rid of me, but I was just asking, you know, type of soy sauce and just finding a way to be interested in the things that you're doing takes you away from worrying about tomorrow because there's not a a lot of room when you are finally present and in the moment. And it doesn't have to be sitting, you know, on a floor, on a pillow with your hands out and you know, chanting and and meditating like that. Mindfulness can be curiosity in the moment where you're really just fully paying attention to what you're doing. Yeah, almost that state of flow. Like even that's one of the reasons I love even doing yard work. And I know a lot of people, I mean, you say, oh, I'm going to go do yard work and you could easily look at that and go, that's a waste of time. It's physical labor, all this. But there is a lot of people that say, you know, I enjoy it because I'm doing something, I'm engaged, I see the results. And that's just one small example, I think, of what you're talking about. Yeah, and I I, I do the same. So I, you know, I may not enjoy cleaning my kitchen, but sometimes I set a little timer for 15 minutes and say, how much can I get done in 15 minutes? Mm. And again, this might sound contrary, but there are certain things that we can't trick ourselves into liking, but we can find way. I, I think a big part of trying to be resilient is become a little creative, try different things. Don't expect all these things to work at once, but I can completely understand how yard work, right? Planting things, seeing the grass grow a little greener, seeing flowers grow, picking weeds and just admiring the the work that you, um, that you just accomplished. So we've talked about resilience a little bit. And I think if we, it would be a disservice if, if we don't address how you define it, because There's a a nice little section in here right there at the beginning where you talk about it. And I think you put a spin on it that changes the conversation. So could you tell us about what resilience means to you? Sure. And then I want to ask you what you think the spin is that's different. Ah, okay. I'm curious. Yes, please do. I I think that, uh, you know, resilience, when I ask people uh, typically what they think about it, they will almost invariably, you, you think of that rubber ball that bounces back, right? And that, that is the term that comes up most frequently. Uh, but I think it is a richer and deeper concept than that. And I think there's a number of, there's a handful of, of elements to it. And the first, I do believe that bouncing back, right? Resilient people don't necessarily give up after the first try, um, if it's, particularly if it's important to their survival and their well-being. I think that they're very good at learning from their mistakes as opposed to beating themselves up. So again, we bring in some of that curiosity and that interest that they can be really good at. I also think that they're, instead of saying how bad things are, they are motivated by the challenges. They can, they can up their game so that when sales are down and you're a manager or CEO, you don't necessarily sit there and wallow in, uh, desperation and say, I can't believe this happened to us. This is terrible. And you focus on the things you can't control. They focus on the things they can control and they find a way to, to rise from the ashes and, and actually probably grow through all of this. And then finally, the last thing I would say is they're really good at forming deep, supportive, intimate relationships. You know, resilient people know when to say when, and I need help. And it's not just one of these things, but, you know, 
at one time or another, you need to activate one of these levers, I think. So, Chris, what was it? What it, what was different about that? Well, well, so, you know, you said, you know, resilience is bouncing back. And then you talk about growth. But then you said, you know, bouncing back is critical, but it does not tell the whole story. Bouncing back also implies that we return to our original shape. And then in your experience, we're never the same after managing adversity. And so it's not that, again, I'm not saying you're the first person to ever come up with that. You would probably say, oh, this shape, that, and this shape, that. Right. But the way it framed the conversation in my mind, because I viewed resiliency as, you know, experience shit, just experience it and it happens and make it through. And as long as you survive it and you come out, if you are lucky enough to get back to baseline, then you are a resilient person. And that's just something that's been deep in my mind. I don't know where it came from, but I will say this. I used to have arguments, not arguments, but like good discussions with my dad who would say, you know, you need the yin to experience the yang. You need the bad to experience the good and all that, especially in my 20s when I was dealing with anxiety and didn't know career stuff and all that. And he would say, no, this is good. You'll appreciate the end more. And I remember always saying that I thought that was BS and that if I could just never experience this and lead this amazing life, um, you know, feel great, then I wouldn't need that negative the negative stuff right now i'm finally understanding it i really i'm I'm coming out the other end i feel um but coming out the other end even better is something that me personally i want to work on believing that because i think it gives meaning to adversity and yeah so thank you thanks for uh, bringing that up i think there's a couple of quick thoughts on that one as well the, the first is that, yeah, I, I do believe that we obviously grow from adversity. I, that, that's what I wrote. That's what I believe. And I, I think, you know, a, a, in, my, in my own travels, you know, you talk about yeah, what you went through both, you know, you've talked about me about this personally. You've talked about this on your podcast, mm-hmm. dealing with some of the anxiety and stuff you went through. You know, my guess is you're a better person, more patient person as a result, and you became more introspective and self-aware uh, as a result as well. Uh, for me, it was the big thing for me was my divorce and then the company just imploding underneath me with the financial collapse. Mm. I'm nowhere near the same person. And I'm a, I, I like myself more. Uh, I'm much happier with who I am, right? The, the other part of this, Chris, is that what you've done is frame things after the fact, right? So you can look back on it and say, oh, now I know why I went through this. When somebody is going through something, you know, our brains work very differently. And it's really, really difficult for us to help somebody else when they're in the midst of the grip, right? When things are really bad. So what one of the, that's why part of why I wrote the book and and put these little hacks in there at the end of the chapters is there are things you could do in just minutes a day because what you want to start doing is going to the gym now for when you've got to compete for whatever that obstacle is or the adversity is six months from now or six weeks or six hours because it's really difficult sometimes to reframe things you know when you go through it you just got to go through it and just live through it and the lessons come later but the prep there is preparation i believe and we can all become stronger uh before if we put a little effort into it We'll be right back to this interview after a quick word from our sponsors. So pumped to have Casper supporting the show again. Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress 
sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in a small, how-did-they-do-that-sized box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. I can speak firsthand for the pillow. It is absolutely amazing. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses start at $500 for a twin-size mattress, $750 for a full, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. It is such a great mattress, Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. And let us not forget, it is made in America. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com smart and using offer code SMART. That's www.casper.com slash smart and offer code SMART. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. Right. And that was the getting ready for change. And and I thought, you know, kind of bracing yourself for resiliency, I think is, it should be taught really in high school, in my opinion. But right, what do I know? <laughs> so, so now that we've laid a, a pretty good groundwork here, let's get into some of the things that we can do. I mean, look, we know the business case, right? We're busy. We're helicoptering as parents. And then as kids, we're, we're being helicoptered. The technology, epidemic of comfort, too much choice. It's creating an environment that breeds adversity. And it just is. And look, you know, that might be different than back in the day on the Oregon Trail when their adversity was broken, you know, axles on their carriage and dysentery. So I understand that throughout time, I'm not saying we're, we're this unique, you know, being, but to deal with resiliency in today's, or to be more resilient in today's environment, you offer up potentially five and a half secrets, which I love the half. Um, let's start, let's get into those. Where do we start? Where do we say, all right, Doug, you've convinced me I need to, you know, I need to work on how I deal with these things. Where do we start? Uh, where do you start? You know, I, that, that is such a good question. I've never been asked that one before. I think it depends on your context. Mm. Of course, the book is linear. It goes, you know, from page one to page 170 or whatever it is. Um, but it really depends on what's going on in your life. So for instance, if you have trouble with anxiety, for instance, you're constantly worrying about things that may happen to your kids or getting laid off or, um, being seen by your bosses, not, you know, performing well and, you know, worrying about the presentation you're going to give tomorrow, then maybe, and I, I stress the word maybe, cause I don't, you know, I'm not, there's a lot more to it than just those things. Maybe some mindfulness is what works for you. Or is it a dose of mindfulness and positivity? Do, is it something as simple as a playlist on your Amazon Music or your iTunes that you know, make, 
brings you to another place and, and pumps you up? Or is it practicing gratitude or acts of kindness? There, and I believe, by the way, that they all kind of work with each other. There's some crossover. So, for instance, being psychologically flexible, which it sounds like our country is not doing any of that in the midst of this election. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, we're all just taking sides and throwing stones. Um, we, you know, being flexible in your thinking, I think, gives you the ability to look at something from multiple angles. But it might be, Chris, that it takes some mindfulness to get to the place to allow you to see multiple points of view. Or, as Barbara Fredrickson says, positivity is positivity. Uh, positive emotions, excuse me, are the seeds of resilience. She's not saying that you can be upbeat all the time and super happy. Um, but, you know, just a dose of somebody giving you a compliment, generating some kindness towards you or you doing it towards someone else can then turn the tide for you so that you can you can think about a situation differently and, and come up with solutions. So I, 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 I know you're looking for the simple answer. I just can't give it. Well, you know... I- I found when reading it, kind of, there is, of course, there's no simple answer. I mean, if there was, would you even have to write a book? Because we'd all be resilient. So I kind of anticipate that. Let's talk about what do you deal with most? What do you see? Because, again, you, you're out at companies, you're with executives. And so these are people that, you know, you and I have had conversations about this. They are highly successful. They are seen having it all together, but we all know it's not just the peons that deal with things. The executives do as well. What do you tend to see comes up the most in your conversations as maybe here's an area we can work on and here's how you would recommend dealing with it? Oh, another really good question, Chris. Um, you know what? That's interesting now that I, you know, I, I haven't thought about those trends but if I think about it, because, you know, so many times, as I mentioned before, I'm in front of people and I'm facilitating a, a full day workshop, right, or a couple days. Mm-hmm. And what I hear there can be a little bit different than what I hear when I'm coaching a C-level executive. Sure. Right? But as I think about it, maybe what I'm hearing is some of the same thing. I, and it might be just this lack of control. So when I'm in a workshop and I'm dealing with people that are frontline people to managers to even directors. It might be hearing that someone else, that they they don't have enough control over what they do. You know, I have to go to this meeting, right? And, And I talk about dangerous phrases in the book, beware of saying always and never because you're, you're kind of giving up, right? Mm -hmm. And you're saying that if I don't do this, the world is going to end. And I, and I'm not saying, that we should avoid these at all costs every single time, but be mindful of your language, right? Now, on the flip side, uh, when we're talking at the executive level, I think giving up control is one of the hardest things that they have to do. And what I, and I don't try to convince, I ask questions and I let them talk through it, but I do have a philosophy that the, the, the more that you can allow your employees to express their autonomy in whatever way that they can, they're going to be more likely to be successful, creative, engaged, less turnover, better teaming. Um, and you know, but it's a hard, hard thing to give up because again, we're living in a society with, um, where we're uh, dealing with layoffs and economic uncertainty 
terrorism and all these things that are in our faces all the time. Mm. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. And, you know, I'm thinking through it. You mentioned a phrase and it triggered. Oh, I remembered. I wanted to talk to Doug about this. You said the thing about giving up. There's this section in your book. I, I Let's see. Let me, I think it's, is it time to give up? And tell us about that one. That one resonated with me so deeply. And I think there's so many people, especially people who listen to this show, because it was founded on this idea of, I mean, finding what you want to do, finding what you enjoy. Mm -hmm. And I think this section addresses it in all of the years of not just going through it myself, but working with clients and learning about this. This section is the thing people need to carry with them always. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah. So part of being resilient is knowing when to give up and there's no magic formula. Uh, but if I could give some advice, what I would say is know what's important to you, know your values, um, put some trip wires in there, meaning, you know, I'm going to try this for a certain amount of time. I'm going to spend a certain amount of money on it. And then when you get to that place, when it's now, um, impeding on your values or you spent more money than you said you would when you were more objective six months ago, then you can give up and be aware that, yeah, it is going to hurt. And it's society's norms that are being imposed on you, not your norms. So we, we don't necessarily, you know, the stories that we hear, Chris, and we were and pre-call, right? We were talking about stories, how powerful mm -hmm. they are, right? Mm -hmm. Now the stories that, that turn into movies, the stories that turn into books are, are not always about people when they gave up. It's when they were facing, you know, what seemed like, uh, odds that they could not overcome and they still, you know, built a multi-billion dollar company, climbed a mountain, won a championship. But we don't hear about the stories when someone gave up and avoided disaster. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously just as important. And I would also argue that in all those stories of success of climbing the mountain, starting the business, whatever it may be, that there's probably a whole bunch of quitting going on all the you know, on, on the way there and mm -hmm. giving up. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that frustrates me to no end, just how you, you really don't ever hear about the journey. You only hear about the results. And I think right. for people going, okay, what's some, some action items here? Because I was in this situation and sometimes I still find myself there specifically with work or goals or tasks. And one of the things you said is if, you know, if you're trying to figure out if you're living based on someone else's expectations, when you consider quitting, so when you consider giving something up, do you immediately think about how someone else will think if you follow through with it? Then you may be living for someone else. And I love that. So if you're thinking, ah, you know, maybe I'll leave this. And the first thing that pops up is so-and-so is going to say this, then I'm going to hear about this, then this person's going to think this. That's a good sign. And I could not agree with you more. Yeah. And, you know, that is, uh, that, that's a scary thing, right? Because, uh, it, it is a recipe for, I think an unhappy life, which lacks resilience. And I, and that also is a opportunity for you to use your flexibility. It's a opportunity to be mindful. And if you hear that voice, consider yourself very lucky. Um, and again, it doesn't make it any easier to tell the parent or the mentor that you've decided to change directions, but it certainly gives you a more art intelligent way to articulate what you really want in life. Doug, you know, I, I'm thinking, I know we're wrapping up here in a little bit. 
but there are five skills of resilience that you talk about. So, and, and we've kind of touched on these, but I want people to know, you know, in your book, kind of what you're digging into. And so if you feel like you need to build these, it's flexibility, optimism, curiosity, positivity or uplifting and support. Where did, I mean, how do you narrow those down? Like, where did you come up with those? <laughs> and then which one do you find, if you were to say you embody one the most, which one do you think it would be? All right. So two questions there. How'd you come up with that? Yep. And which ones do I embody? Right. Mm -hmm. um, how did I come up with it? I had just finished reading Made to Stick. You know, I'm a, the, that I read way too much. Yeah. Um, and I had read Made to Stick and it talked about acronyms and helping people remember things. And if, if you, you know, think about those again, flexibility, optimism, curiosity, uplifting and support, uh, the first letters form an acronym, which is focus. Uh, what I, which I stress more in the workshop than I do in the book. Mm -hmm. um, so that's so it was more about like what could I fit in to a workshop, and had uh, you know was scientifically backed and informed. Now here's the thing: if you notice, it's not the five and a half secrets. Right. It's just five. There's there's more to resilience than what I am sharing. There's probably many, many, many more books to be written on the subject. If I could embody one of these, um, I think flexibility ends up being, uh, and curiosity, the two of those together make me a better coach, a better dad. Um, I just had an incident with my son yesterday where I found out he didn't necessarily behave as he should have at a party. <laughs> and you know what? I very easily could have gone in because I talked to him on the phone last night and I could have gone in with a, well, this is what I heard and you're in trouble. Instead, I just said, what happened? So I, I, I first said, I, I, I don't think I have the right answer here. I can't think I have the right answer. Otherwise, I'm gonna, I may potentially go in the wrong direction with him. So let me be as curious as I can and, and let me make it safe for him. Mm. And he told me everything that happened. And he did make a mistake. And then he came up with what his best course of action was. So I hope that answers your question. It does. It does. And you know, throughout the interview i've kind of i've asked you some questions I've, I've asked some things what can people do but i know you're a humble guy so what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to plug in some places where i think and again i'm a self-help junkie and so when i find things that really do have an impact on my actions i gotta share with the group so i'm gonna tell one other thing about you know one, one other tip out of dozens in this book that i think if you as a listener you know, put in in place today, you would see amazing results. And this is when asked to do something that you normally accept, say no. Okay, we got that, right? We've done that. But how about this one? Create a stop doing list along with your to-do list. Like, Doug, are you kidding me? That's magic. <laughs> we, we, we can all point to, and I teach productivity to companies around the country. We can all point to our checklists are notebooks upon notebooks of things we've gotten done over the years. And I bet you no one has ever said, here are the things written down that I'm not going to do. And I think, why is that? Why don't we create that balance? Why don't we force that balance? And I thought that that was an amazing way to do it. Where do you, I mean, where'd you come up with that one? Or do you do that? I, I do do it. I find, you know, again, how much time, you know, if you think about the real currency in life, Chris, it's 
time. That's all we really have. And how you spend your very abbreviated time on this planet comes down to uh, really being clear about what you're going to do with each minute. And I have found over the years that if something is not adding value in my life anymore, then I'm going to move on from it and not do it anymore. And I can, I can hear some of your listeners saying, yeah, but my boss is telling me I need to do this. Uh, I, I totally agree. And that's a, that's a deeper coaching conversation where curiosity and flexibility need to come in for both people. Um, but I still think it is a worthwhile ex- exercise because, again, we have such limited time uh, on this earth. Well, you know, I couldn't think of a better place to end. The book, Positively Resilient, Five and a Half Secrets to Beat Stress, Overcome Obstacles, and Defeat Anxiety. Doug, it was so great having you on. I really appreciate it. I'd love for you to tell our listeners, where else are you? You know, what, what are you writing out there? Are you doing the social media game? Or are you just out now beating the streets with this book and your, and your business? Yeah, the social media game, Chris. That's a tough one for me. <laughs> yeah. It is a game. Uh, I uh, I will occasionally. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, the website is drh Douglas Richard Hench dash group dot com. So drh dash group dot com. Uh, I've got a newsletter I put out that you can sign up for on the website. Uh, so LinkedIn, like I said, and I'm starting to dip my toes back into to Twitter to just uh, maybe. A, t- a couple of tips a week, a couple of things, and of course, trying to promote the book uh, and get as many people out there to read it and and um, and tell us what they think as as much as possible. Well, Doug, again, thank you so much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I recommend the book Positively Resilient. T- check it out. Take some of the tips out of here and incorporate them into your life. And Doug, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Chris. A lot of fun. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Hello and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Doug Hench. Doug's book, Positively Resilient, Five and a Half Secrets to Beat Stress, Overcome Obstacles, and Defeat Anxiety is available at your local bookstore and on Amazon. Don't forget, if you decide to purchase on Amazon, please use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes to no extra cost to you, but gives us a nice little kickback from Amazon that helps keep all the lights on here at Smart People Podcast. If you're looking for other easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating, review, and comment over there. It only takes about two or three minutes, and it means the absolute world to us. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can reach us via email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for us this week. Please make sure you stay tuned over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter. We've got some great episodes coming up shortly, and we will see you all next episode.